This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf with the Aliens Might Not Be As Scary As You Think episode. My guest today is Karen Lord, whose new book, The Blue Beautiful World, will be out in August. The story follows in the tradition of books where aliens aren't just coming to Earth, they're already here and we don't know it. In my experience, the aliens in those stories, when they reveal themselves or are discovered, are usually scary and up to no good. But that's not the case in the blue, beautiful world. Instead of taking over the world, these aliens are up to something else. And I can't wait to talk about it. The Blue Beautiful World is Dr. Lord's fifth novel. Her previous novels are Redemption and Indigo, which received the William L. Crawford and Mythopoeic Fantasy Awards and was nominated for the World Fantasy Award for Best Novel. That was followed later by a sequel, Unraveling. Her other books are set in the Cigna Beta universe, and that includes the book we're going to be discussing today. The first two books are The Best of All Possible Worlds and The Galaxy Game. She has a PhD in sociology of religion, and she joins me now from her home in Barbados. Thanks so much for coming on the pod to talk about the blue, beautiful world. Thank you so much for having me. How are you doing today? Today is extremely hot and humid. But apart from that, I'm doing quite well. How's the weather by you? We had a period of haze here in New York City from Canadian. Oh, did you ever? <laughs> yes, those wildfires. And every every hour, sometimes I'm checking just to make sure that it's gone away. And it does fluctuate, but it hasn't gotten nearly as bad as it did that everyone saw in those pictures where the sky was orange. And it was actually a beautiful day today. Okay, that's good to hear. Well, so let's dive in. The Blue Beautiful World opens with... Owen. We meet Owen at the beginning. He is a pop megastar, but unlike most megastars of today who expose their every breath on social media, he's a bit of a mystery. People don't know his origins. They infer that he must have already been quite wealthy before his worldwide fame because only a super rich person could, 
quote, completely bury his old self before embarking on a new career. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Owen. Who is this mysterious pop star? Ah, uh, well, my first reaction to that is spoilers, and it's going to be so hard to talk about Owen. But let's talk about not so much who Owen is as what Owen is capable of. And what I wanted to show in that first part where you see Owen is that you have someone who has absolutely tons of charisma. You know, the, the talent is there, but the talent is not outstanding, but there's just amazing charisma. And if there's one of the things, one of the things I have really noticed about history, I noticed even with the present day, is that people with charisma can be really dangerous because they can get some things done that you just would not expect. They can be some, they can be like outliers in a way. So um, I had a lot of fun with Owen's character. Um, I will leave the readers to discover for themselves Owen's background and, and why that's so important. But um, just the whole journey that Owen has and the temptations that he faces, I found that fascinating. It might be helpful if we talk a little bit about the setting of the larger universe of the Cygnus Beta novels. Mm -hmm. What is this universe? What's going on in the larger universe? Well, thanks for that opportunity, because I've really had a challenge. I mean, you, you were saying before, is this a series? Is this a group of novels, the same universe? Yes, these books are in the same universe. And... I don't call it a series because we're not talking about an overarching story where, you know, the first one ends on a bit of a cliffhanger and you're looking for, you know, threads to be picked up in the next one. But there are themes that are continued. There are storylines that are resolved that were not resolved in previous books. So there is definitely enough for you to approach it as a standalone. But for those who have read the first two books, I think it will be another kind of experience entirely. So the Cygnus Beta novel, Cygnus Beta is actually a planet that um, is populated by refugees from Earth, mostly, and also refugees from some other planets in the galaxy. And the, the ones from Earth, I do call them Terrans, please forgive me, <laughs> they are the ones that are considered to have very little, what I would call, psionic ability. So um, the other planets, there are people there who have telepathic abilities, empathic abilities, abilities like, you know, mesmeric, um, mesmerize other people and so forth. And, and they employ them in different ways and in different things. It's very much embedded in their culture. So some of them have also come to Cygnus Beta and there's a little bit of blending and creolization, both genetically and culturally. So Cygnus Beta was the setting for the best of all possible worlds, and I found it to be a very interesting planet because you got to play a lot with all these different cultures and the different ways in which they approach things like communication and consent. Oh, and sorry, the most important thing. In this universe, for the first two books, Earth is under embargo. Earth is under embargo for various reasons, which I won't go into, but the whole point of the Blue Beautiful World is that they realize that some of the aliens, quote unquote aliens, other humans have not been honoring the embargo and they're going to lift it because they realize they have to move quickly and try to kind of stabilize the situation. Well, so there you go. That kind of segues us into, you know, a significant part of the story. And it revolves at least part of it around this group of young people who've been recruited to be trained as diplomats for a global government. Mm -hmm. And you can correct me if I'm getting any of that wrong, but 
they're they're brought to a place to train. They're brought to Havana, a place called Havana. I assume it correlates to our the Havana we know. Mm-hmm. And they're actually at first not sure why a global government needs diplomats. And I that was a puzzle for me. I was like, what is? Oh, right, because there's one government, so there aren't separate people. Are all working together already? <laughs> so mm-hmm. I wonder if you could explain why why is the knowledge that they gain during their training so important to what unfolds in the story? So you mentioned um, that the whole aliens were always here is, you know, a lovely trope that keeps recurring in, in SF. And another trope that keeps recurring that I have always enjoyed is a young person plays a game and discovers that the game is actually a sort of a cultural tool to introduce them to aliens who actually exist. So this is my take on that. Although it's not strictly speaking a game, it's really their teaching module um, where they're like, oh, here's a scenario. Here's a, here's a random scenario. And, you know, this is not too spoilery because by the time you get to that part of the book, you, you yourself are in the know that this is, this is something that um, they're not fully aware of, but you, the reader, are aware of it. And they are, well, you said they're trained to be diplomats. They are definitely like one or two are already, you know, kind of in that career you know, civil service type career ready. Others are coming from slightly different but related backgrounds, um, you know, finance and so forth. And it really is a situation of how, how, how do you deal with this? How do, you, how do you analyze this? How do you assess this? And of course, at first, they don't take it very seriously because, you know, if you're on Earth and you don't think that other planets exist, the other populated planets exist, um, you know, intelligence that could interact with ours, it's a bit of a silly exercise, isn't it? I mean, you you understand that it, it probably has some kind of meaning on some level, but you're not taking it as real. So again, this was something that I could have a lot of fun with, um, especially when they do start to realize much to their horror that it is entirely real. That ties into, I think, another theme, which I thought would be interesting to discuss, which is this notion of what's real and what isn't real, Mm. because this is a world where there's a lot of interaction already occurring in virtual reality, and there's even a company that can what is sort of billed or introduced as just an opportunity to like get rid of wrinkles like you can change the way you look you can change your identity and if you're really good you can kind of detect just the way i suppose some people might be good at detecting plastic surgery i don't know you see like a line or something but there's this sense that even for them this doesn't seem real until it does seem real there's virtual reality environments there's raw reality environments which are real but then there's also times when people are dreaming and then sometimes they're awake but they have experiences that feel like dreams so it's this beautiful mosaic of the way people can interact and and experience the world but it also makes me wonder and i think makes some of the characters wonder how can they tell what's real and what isn't? What is true and what isn't? What is fake? Which seems very relevant to the way we live today and and (laughs) some of the issues we're confronting. So I just wanted to ask you, what are you telling us and what are your characters experiencing by living in this kind of environment? Um, That was a really smart question, by the way. I've never heard it phrased quite that way in terms of the different ways of interacting with reality and and viewing reality. Um, I did indeed sort of, riff off of the dilemmas we face now with, as you say, deep fakes and AI voices and the rest of it. But as you point out, there's also an almost supernatural or spiritual element where sometimes in their dreaming and in their awaking moment, but it's a waking moment with weird dimensions going on, it's, there's still non-mechanical, non-computer, non-digital aspects of reality that are still not necessarily 
um, something that we can fully trust. As to where I was trying to go with that, I think sometimes we all have to take a step back and understand that everything that we see as the world and as reality is mediated through our five senses. And even between humans, we don't really literally experience the world the same way, the, the way we see and so forth. So sometimes what becomes important is not so much the extent to which your reality is true, or no, I don't want to use the word true, true is a loaded word, is real, but more whether it is shared, because it's the sharing of the reality that makes it more powerful than the question of whether it's real or not. That's very interesting. And I wonder, I mean, you definitely feel we talk today about, in the United States at least, people living in different realities, and more and more so choosing to live in certain areas where they're only surrounded by people who believe the same thing. And the same mm-hmm. thing happens on social media where you become friends, quote unquote, friends with someone who mm-hmm. is a like-minded thinker. So mm-hmm. there are shared realities, but I suppose those realities could clash sometimes. Well, it's, it's powerful and it's perilous, isn't it? Because, sorry, I'm <sighs> calm down, starting to geek out a bit. <laughs> it's, it's powerful and it's perilous because Yes, your reality may be widely shared, but it may still not be true. That's why I was hesitant to use the word true earlier, because that's a slightly different um, adjective we're using here now. And someone was telling me recently about the book that one of the things they liked is that Owen in particular had such a wide network of friends and family who cared about him and who kept checking in with him and keeping him on a straight and narrow. And I, I was really thrilled that they noticed that because I said, especially when you have power, you need a large network of people who are willing to, can I swear? Yes. They're, they're willing to call you on your shit, okay? You need those people, and they need to not all agree because you need the varying opinions and then to triangulate those opinions. So you're not, in fact, surrounding yourself with people who are all going to agree, whether it's positive or negative in terms of you. You want the differing opinions, but you want them to at least care about you and, and have your you know, best interests at heart, shall we say, have some good intentions. And then you have to do the hard work of of critiquing what they say and filtering it, looking at your own biases as well as looking at theirs, and then come into some kind of kind of bottom line that you can operate from. Yes, that we, I wish we all had our, what is it called, a kitchen cabinet, you know, our group of advisors <laughs> and friends who care for us, but also are willing to call us out on our shit. Like, that's a mm-hmm. very important resource for, for everyone to have. But you're right, especially people with power, that makes a lot of sense. I wanted to talk about the idea of colonization. That's Mm -hmm. clearly a theme of the story. And I wondered how that tied into global government. And I guess what I was thinking was how, when you have all these cultures and people and nations, they're working together. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you don't want them to lose, or maybe you do, but I would think you wouldn't want them to lose their uniqueness or how do you not risk that one group won't exploit or dominate another? We are still trying to solve that, aren't we? But when you speak of colonization, I've always found it fascinating that in history, whenever there is a fairly large empire of some sort and they're drawing a map, they always seem to like call the map of where they are, the world. And and the rest is like the fringes or the, or, or the, or the hinterland or whatever, but theirs is the world. So I think that the global government mentality has always been there with the, with the massive empires, 
And within the empire, I mean, we talk about colonization, meaning that, you know, the empire has power over, like, I guess you would call it outposts, and then there's a core. But even within what we think of as a core, there are all these other smaller cultures that have already been assimilated for a very long time. When you look at the origins of what we now call Greece, when we look at the origins of what we now call China, you are looking at many languages, many peoples, ethnicities, and so forth. And at one stage, they were as concerned about not being consumed and subsumed by this larger power that was going to dictate um, what the common language should be and what the common attire should be and all the rest of it. So um, we have been struggling with this for quite some time. And I think that it becomes... Maybe it becomes a little easier as we move into an era where we do communicate a lot more because it's by it, it's isolation that makes um, a language become separate. It's being divided by a river or an ocean or whatever that makes you develop a completely different culture. So you can start off with uh, you know, a set of people who are actually the same, split them on opposite sides of an ocean, and they're going to develop differences. And the flip side of that is you can bring people together by giving them something like the internet. And we kind of find ourselves in a common culture of the internet and our, and our shared entertainment media, for that matter, where we begin to have the same cultural references. I don't think it's a cure-all. But I think that we are beginning to allow ourselves to, on the one hand, have a, a, a global identity, a regional identity, a national identity, and then almost like a community identity, all these nested identities, and just allow ourselves to, to give each one voice depending on the situation and to give each one respect depending on the situation. We're very much still navigating it and negotiating it, but at least if you have one of those identities shared across the board there's no need to clash as much. Well, I noticed in your acknowledgments, you mentioned the Malaysian writer Zen Cho as someone who has enriched your writing, but you also note that she knows, quote, knows what it means to have the influence of the British Empire in your history, your literature, and your use of language. Mm -hmm. So it made me wonder how you, as a writer, grapple with those influences yourself, being from a former British colony, but also, you know, having your own unique identity as a Barbadian and all your other influences, I'm sure that you've had in your life. So not all colonies are created equal. I mean, I'll just give a quick comparison with, let's say, um, India. Um, before the British came, India was very much its own peoples and countries and languages and religions and all the rest of it. And you, you kind of take the British Empire out of that and you have a sort of English as a sort of a shared second language there, but the, the rest of it didn't get erased. Barbados' story is so different. It was literally uh, an empty island when the British came. Um, there, had, there were traces of, of occupation before by indigenous peoples, but they had moved on at that particular point when the British came in. And then, of course, um, the British brought in um, enslaved people and indentured servants and all the rest of it. Bajans are kind of slightly, I would call us almost like Afro-Celts because the indentured servants were mostly Scottish and Irish. And um, and even up to now, um, there's clear influences in the Bajan dialect that come from the Scots dialect. And it's because of, well, that's who we learned our English from <laughs> as we worked side by side in the fields, as it were. <laughs> so there's all kinds of, of like interesting and almost like insane things happening um, just for Barbados, which means that 
there isn't an original language that we can hark back to. There isn't an original religion for this land that we can hark back to. That that doesn't that doesn't obtain. We can talk about the influences that come from West Africa, and there are plenty of those. We can talk also about the influences that, that come from Scotland. There are more of those than I, than I realized until I had the chance to study there once. And I was like, I'm having a real uncanny valley feeling here. Uh, and, um, and then that's just Barbados. By the time you even move a few, um, you know, 100,000 miles away throughout the region, different islands were colonized by different empires. So you go to St. Lucia, which is relatively speaking like half hour, 40 minutes by, by small plane. And um, there's, there's, a, there's a patois that they speak there because they were originally colonized by the French and up to recently still had enough of that, that, you know, that's, they're bilingual in that. So there's this a whole different history again. It becomes a game, literally. The, when you look at West Indian history, you are going to have to either laugh or cry, and sometimes you end up doing both. But in a sense, what we do is we're like, you know what? You took this away from us, but you gave us this, and we're going to claim it, and we're going to make it different, we're going to make it ours. And, and then you just run with it. And that's, I think, that's what has happened. You know, we have our dialect, as I said. There's also French Creole, different, different, English, different Englishes, different English dialects. And we just remember to continue to develop our culture and develop our identity in ways that are no longer dependent on an outside country telling us this is how it should be. That was a bit of a ramble. I'm so sorry. But but you were, we were talking about colonization. And as I said, I just find it to be a fascinating and fraught topic that just never has any simple answers. Oh, it's totally fascinating. The whole idea, you said African Celt? Is that what... Afro Celt. <laughs> Afro Celt, right. I mean, I mean, that's brilliant. That's so interesting. And there's so many layers there. Oh, two things I should point out to you. Huh? Um, just to hammer it home, you know that Scotland's National Day is St. Andrew's Day, which is November the 30th, which is our Independence Day. And you know the Scottish flag is a saltar, which is um, on our coat of arms, holding a hand holding a loft crossed shirkane, and also for Jamaica, again, the saltar. Those are there for a reason, because of those influences. Oh, very interesting. I wonder if the more powerful entity that Britain once was, the Behemoth nation mm -hmm. will have one perspective about global government, probably like, why would we want that? We already have, you know, we're in control. We don't want to give up control. But mm -hmm. a smaller country sees advantages in having both independence, but understanding, you know, the story you're expressing is a very hopeful one about the possibility of bringing people together. And it's very optimistic, actually. So we have a little taste of global government happening with regional governments. In the book, you will see, although I don't mention it by name, that the EU apparently appears to be still working. They're definitely still separate countries, but there's still that level of connection between them that it pretty much feels like the EU now. I also kind of cheekily broke apart both the US and Canada into separate countries. So that, again, you can appreciate that probably there's a sort of regional type of cooperation amid, uh, among those new countries. But again, they're separate countries. So I like to think that I've maybe created an atmosphere in that hypothetical future where people no longer view nations and borders in quite the same way, where it's more about your regional clusters and your shared interests. And your shared interests might not even be just within the region than it is about having a particular country who's borders you have to defend. 
Well, I'm going to stick to themes because there's so much in the book I don't want to spoil. So I'll just talk more broadly. <laughs> and another theme is water. And it's even in the title of the book, The Blue Beautiful World. Mm -hmm. And one of your characters, Kanoa, is from Polynesia. And also a good part of the action takes place on the water, in under the water, in the water. And mm -hmm. I mean, I'm just going to take a wild guess that being from an island nation probably has something to do <laughs> with the power <laughs> of water in your storytelling. So, but I wonder if you could Talk about what, what do water and oceans mean to you and what do they mean to the story? Well, um, to me, actually, I'm, I'm kind of terrified of them. <laughs> In the sense, okay, uh, to give you context again, Barbados is about 144 square miles. There is literally a part of the island that I can drive up to and look around and see like three coastlines. But you can't see any other land from any of the coasts of Barbados. So it's, a, it's an oddly isolating feeling, and it's also a feeling of like you're standing tiptoe on a small rock and you could just like, you know, tip over and just crash into the ocean at any time. <laughs> it's really bizarre. And on the one hand, I've often felt like I need to get comfortable with the ocean because um, the ocean is like my only means of escape. Let me tell you, when the pandemic happened and at first, you know, the, the skies were closed for a little while, that was, that was a really odd sensation. But then we had another incident, another brush with a natural disaster, which you will completely appreciate because it was like what you had to deal with. Um, we had a volcano in a neighboring island go off and the ashfall and the upper level winds were carried over to Barbados. And we're talking sun being blotted out at noon, apocalyptic levels of ashfall. So, of course, the airport like had to be shut down because nothing was flying in that. And I think it was shut for about a week. And um, and then, of course, the, the ports were also slightly compromised. And I so many things come into here via shipping and so forth. And I just felt like this is a trap. This is a prison. This is a, I, I just felt absolute terror. And I love living here. I love it. Don't get me wrong. But when something bad goes down, it's like, boom, all of a sudden you realize the ocean is not your natural habitat. It's not your friend. It's not making things easy for you. We are very much living on the skin part of land. We don't know the ocean. We don't know the surface of the ocean. We don't know the depths of the ocean. There is a huge level of respect and mystery that the ocean just like commands. So um, that's what it means to me personally. And I think that's why I try to convey in the book where we've always, we've always had a situation of, oh, if aliens came to Earth, of course they'd be interested in us. Oh, who are we? We're living on the surface. <laughs> We don't even know what's in the depths of the ocean. We don't even know what's there that is even capable of, that we might be capable of communicating with, uh, don't even talk about whether they would want to communicate with us. So I also wanted to introduce the concept that they were aware because of the precedent of the Sidiri mineships. This is another planet that has kind of ocean-going stingray-type behemoths. <laughs> Sorry, did I say ocean going? I meant space going, but they were they originated from the oceans. So they're aware from their own um, planetary background that there could be intelligences in the ocean because they have had intelligence in the ocean. And they're immediately like, well, you've got a lot of oceans, so we need to ask some questions here. Do you really think that it's only on land that you're going to find um, people who can claim Earth is theirs? 
so it's it's a it's a bit of a check. It's a bit of a reminder, not only to decenter ourselves within the solar system and in the galaxy, but also even to decenter ourselves on our own planet as not necessarily being at the apex predator at the top of the tree. Well, I love that idea. I mean, there's all the other animals too. I mean, just that the the perception that how would we be seen from some beings on the outside? Of course, they'd look down and they would not see necessarily the the hegemony that we've created in our mind, the hierarchy, I mean, in our mind that we we believe exists, but it might not be evident to them and it might not even be true. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you about something else. Uh, it was in the acknowledgments too. It was an interesting point you, you mentioned. You said what inspires you is the tension between the familiar and the unfamiliar and that your fiction is more sociological than speculative. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could unpack that. What what happens when the familiar and the unfamiliar meet in your work? That's a brilliant question. So I, I'm trying to remember why I wrote the acknowledgments. <laughs> um, familiar and unfamiliar is one of the tensions, but I've also, I think, described the tension as between the, the holy and the mundane, the things that we know and are so so accustomed to that we barely even see them anymore, which is the mundane, the familiar. And then the luminous, the things that, that fill us with awe because they're so beyond what we are able to comprehend. And as I said, when you have that that clash, that moment, it's almost like a it's almost like a Zen moment. You know, there's that don't um, get me wrong, I don't actually know the background of this. But you know, there's that image of the of the the acolyte meditating and then his master comes and smacks him and that's supposed to like give him that shock to give him that moment of enlightenment. That's the clash I'm envisaging when I think of, as I say, that tension between the familiar and the unfamiliar where um, you're, you're going about your life and you think you've got things sorted and then wham, something just hits you and you're like, whoa, no, I got to just revisit all my assumptions. Um, I'm having a total like paradigm shift of how I view the world, how I view myself. That's where the interesting stuff happens. Um, that's where, and I mean, a lot of us develop that way. We don't develop gradually. We develop in, in plateaus of these like shock moments to like propel us forward. So you were saying, what does that have to do with a sociological fiction as opposed to a speculative one? So speculative is more about, I always think speculative is, is more about the, the what-ifs in terms of what if this technology were developed and what if um, this particular country configuration happened in a different way and what have you. And definitely there's a lot of that in my books. But the sociological aspect is more of a look at how societies interact look at a society almost like a character and understand that this is a character who's interacting with your individuals who are characters as well i had an academic interview me and introduced me this concept that you know blew my mind away and he described sociological fiction uh, the sociological imagination as seeing um seeing it in, in three levels the the private issues of the individual private concerns the individual, the public issues of the society that they're living in, and the historical context that kind of has produced them both. So you're understanding history in terms of interaction between the public and the private all the time. And what that does is that I can never write a book that has like one hero who just like does everything perfectly and has all these right, you know, rise and fall and setback and whatever, and then boom, victory at the end. Because the reality is always more complex. The reality is 
things come out of left field. People who are minor characters suddenly have a humongous effect on what happens in terms of the trajectory of, of the plot. The the context of where they are and and the society they're in, all of that matters. And then the whole the the, the history behind it all also very much determines whether or not you're really looking at heroes or villains operating. Or, or not even neither of them, heroes or villains, but just people who maybe don't have a very clear idea as to the consequences of their actions. So you do end up with something that, I will admit, is not often fully satisfying to readers who may want a more clear-cut arc. But I, I absolutely nerd out over this, because to me, sociology is, is my science. And, and it's my, this is where I'm tinkering. This is my thought experiment where I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm actually drawing some examples here now from history or from some other contemporary region um, that has this particular thing happening. And sometimes the, the pieces of the mosaic are ground down very finely. So I couldn't say to you, ah, yes, I am doing a version of, you know, 18th century, whatever, whatever. <laughs> no, this is not what's going on at all. It's just like sometimes one random article, one cool idea that someone spouts off in, in the middle of the whole book. And I'm like, oh, wait, if I introduce that one little bit there, then what happens? A lot of what happened in um, the Galaxy game was about transport. Transport is a big deal in our region. We are, we are little islands scattered throughout the sea. And, you know, the whole like, or just have a ferry. Look, the distances are not that close, okay? There's some islands where they're reasonably close. But I told you already that you can't even see land from any of our coasts. So, you know, I, I was literally in the real world trying to think, what the hell do we do about our transportation issues? Especially since we have a colonial history that meant all paths led to London and there were not many connections between the islands themselves. And then I was like, okay, well, this is interesting for the Galaxy game because the main people in charge of transportation throughout the galaxy, the Sidiri, their mind ships, they're the ones that had the big stuff happening to them. And now they're so distracted that they can't have that power anymore. They are, they've got other, other things to worry about. So now you have a galaxy where all of a sudden transport isn't as, as seamless and as familiar and as settled and as stable as it once was. And smack, the unfamiliar comes and hits them and somebody has to come up with some kind of shift in thought and some kind of new thing to do in order to return them to that um, seamless activity they had before. So... Yes, I'm rambling, but it's good because you asked a good question. Um, <laughs> so that's what I mean by sociological. You know, you can you can take something like this. And you can say, "Wow, take take this problem. What are the consequences?" But um, you know, we're not going to play it out with the contemporary world where things are very twisty and very complicated. We're going to simplify it just a little bit by inventing a few planets and you know, smoothing smoothing out some of the complexities a bit. They're still going to be interestingly diverse, but we can't have too much of that because it's a it's a book. It's not a like you know twelve volumes or anything like that. And um, and then you just you just sort of see what happens. The fascinating thing for me as a writer is the effect of your subconscious on all this data, because writer's block happens when things don't make sense. So in a way, you're writing because the writing itself shows you the path. So you're trying to figure out what would happen if, and instead of thinking it out and going, oh, yes, this is what would happen. And sometimes you do. Sometimes you're like, oh, yeah, this is what would happen. You try to write it. And you're like, no, this is not happening. <laughs> this is not what I imagined it would be. This is not as simple as I thought. I can see some, some other problems here. And then you go away and you walk up and down for about a week and mutter to yourself. And your family looks at you very strangely and worries about you. And then you're like, aha, I think I have it. And then you sit down and you find another path. 
and um, maybe the plot has to twist a little more <laughs> and it goes in directions to expect, but that's the beauty of it. I mean, your answer kind of reveals the way, obviously, the way your mind works. I mean, there's, I mean, <laughs> the story is rich with invention. I mean, it feels like a very thoroughly thought through world. There are lots of little details and things that are through the minds of the characters sort of taken for granted in their world. Oh, this is how we do things. But you could tell that there's something very original going on there that doesn't happen in our world. And the book is really filled with that. So I see how there, there is that speculative quality, I think, in the sense that you are throwing things in that, you know, you can extrapolate maybe from now or from the pro- problems that you're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. It was a nice taste of, uh, <laughs> of both the story and your answer. You know, I could tell they're connected, though. You wrote that book. You wrote the book. <laughs> It's confirmed. It's it's it's, it's confirmed. Yes. Yep. That's that's my stamp. <laughs> so the message of the book, the sense, the hope that people can work globally and beyond Earth with others. It's not a given that it'll all work out, but there's something mm-hmm. very optimistic about the potential and the openness that the people who've been chosen or are participating in this process as you present it. So, so I guess I wonder, are you ultimately an optimistic person? Are you an earth, are you an earth optimist for <laughs> our world today? Are you optimistic about our prospects on this planet? So my feeling is that if, you, if by optimism you mean the fuel to desire to go forward, then, I, then there's no there's no other option but to be an optimist. Because to be a pessimist and say that, you know, nothing works, nothing nothing can help, nothing will fix this, means that you will not do stuff. So you have to have at least the level of optimism that allows you to forge ahead, to do things even when they're not going to be perfect, to, I love this expression, not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. So let's let's call it a kind of a hopeful pragmatism. Like, you know, yes, we're horribly flawed beings. Yes, the world isn't like tailor-made for us. Yes, fate is a thing we can't control. But we can still have a lot of fun trying. Because if there's one thing that human beings have like baked into their souls is they'd love to just play games. And to me, life is like the biggest game of all. We don't even know what it means to win at life, but we keep inventing it. <laughs> and um, and yes, I think that whatever makes us decide that we're not going to throw in the cards is something worth like keeping as a, an attribute. So yes, I will I will take the optimism tag. Okay, well then then we have to end the interview there because that's a nice way to end an interview on an on, <laughs> on an optimistic note. So thank you so much. Thank you. This has been really fun talking to you and f- really a pleasure reading your book. Thank you so much. I've been talking to Karen Lord, whose novel The Blue Beautiful World will be out in August from Del Rey. I'm Rob Wolf, your host for this episode of New Books in Science Fiction. I'll be back next month with my co-host, Brenda Nuezer. Marshall Poe is editor and founder of the New Books Network, and Leanne Wilson is co-editor. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. Please subscribe to the show and leave a review, tell your friends, and buy, borrow, and give away a lot of books, and keep on reading. <laughs>